0: Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books Author Reading Series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at SkylightBooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at three two three six six zero one one seven five. Thanks for listening, and enjoy.
1: But today we are here for Blowout. Uh, Sal Castro and the Chicano struggle for educational justice, Um, both, uh, uh, let's see, Sal Castro is sitting way in the back row, right there, so... I'm looking forward to hearing what I say. Um, But here is um, Mario T. Garcia, who is Professor of Chicano, Chicana Studies, and Adjunct Professor in History and Religious Studies at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and Sal Castro is an American educator and activist. So we're very happy to have them both. Please welcome Mr. Garcia and Mr. Castro.
0: Thank you so much and thanks to the bookstore for uh, inviting us. Uh, as we've been going around doing our uh, book tour, y- generally I uh, represent kind of the warm up act for Sal Castro. So uh, I'll do my warm up and then Sal will come up here and do, and do his, uh, his thing. But thank you very much for coming out on such a rainy night and, um, and being, and being wi- with us. How many of you, if I could ask, know something already about the so-called blowouts of 1968? Raise your hand. Okay, so that gives me an an idea that you already have some idea of what it is. But essentially, well, first of all, what this book is, it's an oral history, it's a life story of a remarkable individual, remarkable teacher, committed teacher, uh, who, in 1968, although the, the book really tells his whole story from his birth to to his retirement in 2003 as a teacher in the, L- East, in the Los Angeles public school system, but he's best known and, and should be, uh, and, and, and with good reason, he was one of the few Mexican-American teachers in the East LA public schools in 1968 when something like 20,000 students walked out in the first week of March of 1968 that Sal had, uh, had uh, helped organize, had helped to inspire, had helped to stimulate, to think about the problems in their schools that had been there for many, many years. Uh, and, uh, and, and as a result, uh, they, they walked out. It was a student strike, one of the largest student strikes in the history of the United States, referred to as the blowouts. And so Sal Castro is best known for that. But uh, this book really tells his entire story so that we know who Sal Castro is, who he is fooling. But, but the key chapters are on the 1968 walkouts. And, and those walkouts really brought attention to the many, many years of problems in, in the relationship between the public schools and Mexican-American students. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Uh, and so the students were uh, inspired by Sal were addressing all of these years of uh, uh, bad schooling uh, that uh, that had been accumulating those issues and the students were basically then struggling for what we call in the book educational justice. And so, and of course, we know that many of these problems, some of the problems were, were addressed, but many other problems still remain today. And Sal will talk about that. Uh, and so we still need to continue that struggle for, for social justice. Um, I want to read to you first uh, a few epigraphs which are, quotations that kind of put the book in in a little bit of context. Uh, One uh, uh, reads as follows, many Chicanos have long uh, waited for the Sal Castro story. and This is by Professor Rudolfo Acuna. And another is, uh, we saw reflected in the world that people thought that something could be done. We We felt we had to do what we could with our lives as well. That was a time in 1968 that comes from Moctezuma Esparza. And then uh, change wasn't going to come from within, it had to come from without Paula Chrysostomo, one of the students' leaders at, student leaders at Lincoln High School. And then um, this, quote, this epigraph, Speak truth to power and things will happen. And that's by John Ortiz, who was a student leader at uh, Garfield High School. And it's a privilege to have John here with us and hopefully he'll, he'll, he'll be able to talk a little bit l- later uh, as well. Uh, I've also, uh, um, when I started the, the book, uh, of course, we all knew the, about the so-called blowouts, but no one knew where that term came from. And send, some people said, well, we think John Ortiz uh, came up with that term blowout. And so when I interviewed John, uh, I, uh, I asked him about the, where, where the hell did that, that term come, came from? And so he, he told me where. And if you have your books, you can go to page 143 and see John Ortiz's quote there, where he says, when I asked him, what did, what did, what would, what did the, the term blowout mean? Why was it used? Why did you use it in relationship to the student walkouts? And John said the following. <clears throat> he said, the term blowout was like an east side hipster term. It was a jazz expression. It meant being expressive. You would say of a musician, he blew it out. I improvised using the term to refer to the walkouts. The other kids picked it up, as did the Chicano media. So that was the origins of the term uh, uh, blowout. And uh, let me also say that it's been an honor and privilege to to work on Sal Castro's uh, story you know we've worked for for a number of years and it's just a, a privilege to have told his story and uh... he was a wonderful subject. He's a, a tremendous storyteller and uh... he had me laughing he had me crying uh... it was ju- just a wonderful story to, to have told and, I, and I've written about many other people in the past Bert Corona uh... Cesar Chavez Dolores Huerta uh... to name just a few and uh but uh, Sal's story is, is a remarkable one. Um, I began also by, by asking the question who is Sal Castro and I address it in my, in my introduction and so let me just uh, read a little bit from, from that. Uh, Sal Castro although unknown to most Americans, and indeed to most other Mexican Americans and other Latinos, is a major figure in the Chicano struggle for educational justice in the United States. Educational justice, in turn, has been a centerpiece of the larger Chicano struggle for civil rights. As one of the few Chicano teachers at the LA School District in the 1960s, which included the so-called Mexican schools in East LA, Castro was the indispensable figure in what came to be known as the 1968 blowouts or walkouts by perhaps as many as 20,000 students to protest inferior education in the East Side School. It was Sal, as he is properly called, who as a playground director in the late 1950s and then as a young teacher in the 1960s, recognized the problems affecting Mexican students in the schools, low expectation by teachers, a stress on vocational rather than an academic curriculum, high dropout rates, low reading scores, insensitive teachers and counselors, overcrowded classrooms, and a lack of ethnic and cultural reinforcement, among many other problems. Sal's own experiences attending public elementary schools in East LA during the 1930s and 1940s further added to his understanding that the schools had historically failed in teaching the Mexican-American students. And I go on to say, so who is Sal Castro? He is a major figure in U.S. educational history, in U.S. civil rights history, and in Chicano history. He is a major American leader and one who deserves just recognition. He deserves his place in the pantheon of key Chicano movement leaders, such as Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Ruben Salazar, Bert Corona, Corky Gonzalez, and Reyes Lopez de Heredina. This is who Sal Castro is, and more his story will uh, reveal. I also mentioned that in order to understand uh, the story, especially that of the walkouts, well let me fa- first also say a little bit about the origins of the book. Uh, I knew of course of South Castro, who Sal Castro was. I didn't, I didn't really know him personally, but when I started to doing a course on the history of the Chicano movement, I started inviting Sal to come and speak. And it didn't take me very long to realize that his story needed to be told. Um, and so I approached him about beginning to work on his life story, so that it would be a process through oral history, and i already had done a number of oral histories, most notably my oral history of Bert Corona, a longtime labor and community leader here in Los Angeles, and so that's what I had in that's what I had in mind, a, a, a book that would deal with Sal Castro's full life story. And so he very graciously accepted, and we began, this was you know, maybe in the early, about 2000, 2001, and we did a number of interviews, I think we accumulated about 50 hours of interviews, and so hundreds of pages of transcript. And uh, that was a wonderful experience because I learned so much about... Well, Sal was, and about Chicano history, and especially, of course, about the walkouts, the blowouts of 1968. Uh, and then I began to write it up. Uh, and I remember in the fall of 2006 I began to write. So it took me about a year, year and a half to write up the, the initial draft, and then Sal went through making corrections, and then we both uh, felt comfortable with it, and then we submitted it to be reviewed by a press, and it was published by University of North Carolina Press, which I think we both very, very uh, feel very good about the uh, ultimate uh, productions of a very attractive-looking book, very striking um, uh, book jacket. And so, uh, anyway, so we... We did this through a process of oral history, uh, and, uh, and so it's Sal's life story. It's, it's also what in Latin America is referred to as a testimonio uh, or a testimony. And the term testimonio comes from a number of testimonial narratives that began to appear in Latin America in the beginning in the 1960s that related to many of the Latin American struggles for liberation uh, in different Latin American countries. And these narratives were written not only to uh, uh, inform others uh, about those struggles and about the conditions in Latin America, the struggle against oppression, against poverty, and so forth, but also to uh, inspire others to take up the struggle. And that's what a testimonio uh, does. A testimonio, it gives voice to the voiceless. It is an oppositional narrative to the mainstream view of history because you bring in people whose stories are not part of the mainstream. And therefore, their stories are basically countering what the mainstream narrative is. Uh, In the case of Latin America, that Latin America was moving toward democracy, blah, 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 blah. And these narratives. These testimonials basically challenge that, and no, Latin America still had a lot of oppression and poverty, so Sal Castro's testimony runs counter to the basic narrative, for example, that when you have social problems, what do we do? We emphasize education, that education is the panacea for our social problems. Sal Castro's narrative challenges that, because it basically suggests that, yes, in general, maybe education is is, a, is a, a way to deal with our social problems, but in certain cases, like in the Chicano case, education, unfortunately, is part of the problem. The schools are part of the problem. These schools that go back to the early 20th century when large numbers of immigrants began to come from Mexico were literally referred to as Mexican schools. They were segregated schools. They were inferior schools. and. At the same time that as Mexican immigrant workers were coming up, they were being racialized, they were being put in uh, racial slots, uh, pressed by their race but also by their working class backgrounds. Uh, The jobs that a lot of these immigrants in the early 20th century uh, received were literally called Mexican jobs and they were paid what were literally referred to Mexican wages and then to add insult to injury, their kids had to go to Mexican schools and so the school system basically complemented the social system that prioritized and prized Mexicans, especially as immigrants and immigrant workers, as cheap labor. Well, that's no surprise to us today, because the system still prizes Mexicans and other Latinos as cheap pools of labor. And the schools complement that. The schools, rather than trying to uplift these kids from, from those positions, basically then feed them right back into that system. This has been the nature of the public school system and minority groups like African-Americans and Mexican-Americans and other Latinos. So Sal Castro's narrative, which shows the problems in these schools in the 1960s and why the kids then rose up to, to demand changes and to restructure the schools, then challenges that basic narrative that education is a solution to all of our problems. Generally speaking, yes, but it has to be education without these other kinds of attached racial and, and class uh, problems that basically then channels kids into the same kind of pools of cheap labor that their parents represent. So. Uh, that's what, that's what a testimonial does. It uh, challenges the, the, the master narrative. It's, it's therefore a narrative of the subaltern, the people who are oppressed. It gives, as I say, a voice to the voiceless. And, uh, it, but that at the same time, it isn't just the sto- a story. It's a, a story that is meant to inspire the rest of us to say, yes, now I understand what the problem is, and we're going to change it. We're going to continue to struggle to change it, so it, is, it, it has that kind of inspiration, or should have, anyway. Uh, I should also say that for Chicano history, uh, oral history has been very, very important, obviously for the 20th century, There's, because uh, uh, it's been a way to fill in gaps. Uh, for years and years, libraries and archives did very little about about Chicano history, of of bringing in documents or bringing in other materials that related to that experience. So at least those of us who work on the 20th century, we have to fill in those gaps by doing uh, oral history, by interviewing people and so forth. So uh, that's uh, that's an essential part of, of Chicano historiography. One of the other things that I did in doing this book, besides interviewing Sal for something like 50 hours, I also interviewed some of the students who had been involved in the walkouts, like John Ortiz and others. And so, and I also did archival research and and research on newspapers and so forth that covered that event. So periodically in the book, as you're reading it, it's Sal's voice, but here and there, I will insert these other voices. Like for example, during the course of the walkouts, I'll insert, a quote from John Ortiz, or a quote from Paula Chrysostomo, or from Mita Cuaron, and some of the other students who were involved, or some of the college students uh, who were involved, like Raul Rees, or Montezuma Esparza, and so forth. Uh, so it gives it a kind of more of a collective voice, and that, that's because Sal had mentioned to me uh, as we were doing our, our interviews that he didn't want to appear to be like he was the entire... Uh, um, that everything revolved around him. In my personal opinion, I don't believe that the walkouts would have, would, would, I don't believe that they would have occurred without his leadership and inspiration. Nevertheless, uh, I've added these other voices so it gives it more of a collective uh, context to it. The, uh, as I say, the the book, uh, you know, covers uh, uh, Sal Castro's uh, uh, basic story. Uh, Sal was born in, in 1933 here in Los Angeles. He was literally born like Cheech Marine, born in East LA. And uh, the other thing you have to understand, I mean I've given you kind of a historical context. To understand uh, especially around the walkouts, you have to understand then that long history of ed- public education and Mexican-Americans. Some people uh, argue that one of the problems between the public schools and communities like Mexican-Americans is that the public schools have neglected the Mexican-American student, the Chicano student, but that's false because the schools have always been there. It's not, they haven't neglected. It's the nature of those schools as I've already mentioned, the so-called Mexican schools, or we refer to them as inner city schools, but it's the nature of those schools. They've not neglected minority communities. They've always been there. It's the nature of the schools and the limitations of, of, of those schools. So that's one context. And you also then have to contextualize this story, especially around the walkouts, the history of the 1960s, which was a very tumultuous period, as many of you know, in terms of mass protests on civil rights, on black power, the anti-war movements, and so forth. It's, it's a Tumultuous period, and of course, 1968 is a tumultuous year. You have you have the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy here in Los Angeles. You have student rebellions in in France, for example. You have later in in October in Mexico City, and in Mexico you have student uprisings in Mexico and so forth. 1968, you have the the, pro- the protest at the Democratic Party convention in Chicago in the summer of 1968—it is a, it, the, the whole country, the whole world—is in an uproar, almost like what we're seeing in the Middle East today, and so. So the blowouts in '68, in some ways, is part of that history. You have to contextualize what a, what, a, what a, the kinds of uprisings and the militancy of that period, and how people were getting, were challenging the system, were asking you know fundamental questions about the system, and so forth. And so the, the kids were the students were doing that in terms of the school system as well. So, uh, I, I deal with Sal Castro's story, uh, born in Los Angeles, his, his parents were immigrants, his father did not have his documents, he was part of the mass deportations in the 1930s, it's estimated that maybe half a million Mexicans were deported out of, uh, out of the United States in the, in the 30s. Many of them were U.S. born children that should have never been sent back. Why? Because of the Depression, and all of a sudden, uh, those so-called Mexican jobs became, became prized by non-Mexicans. Anyone wanted a job. If It didn't matter whether it was a Mexican job. And anyone wanted wages, even if there were Mexican wages. They just wanted a job and wages. And so these people, Mexicans, were accused of taking jobs from, quote-unquote, real Americans. And so they were rounded up and and sent to Mexico. But at least half, if not more, were U.S. born because they were the children of families that, that were sent back. Uh, Sal then uh, experienced, even though he still was very young, his own father being sent back. That ultimately created a tension with, with his immigrant mother who, was, who had her documents. And even though they went back and forth visiting the father in Mexico, it ultimately led to divorce. But Sal uh, grew up in LA. He went to the, the public schools in East Los Angeles initially. Uh, as a young boy, in 1943, he witnessed a Suit rise because he was a shoeshine boy in downtown Los Angeles when um, U.S. military personnel, primarily in the Navy, ran rampant through downtown Los Angeles, attacking Chicanos, uh, the so-called zoot Zutsuters of that era, uh, and so forth and so on. So even though 1943, we're in the middle of World War II, the so-called Good War, the war against uh, uh, fascism and racism by, the, by Nazi Germany and by, by fascist Japan, The war is against racism, but we see racism here in the streets of downtown Los Angeles. Needless to say, there's other examples of racism, the internment of the Japanese-Americans, so forth and so on, segregation of African-Americans in their own units the most ironic thing, we're fighting against race, r- fascist racism when we're segregating African-Americans in their own in their own uh, military units. Uh, so Sal witnessed that. He he went through Catholic schools as well. He's a product of Cathedral High School here in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, but ha- Sal always had a kind of a challenging personality, he would challenge his teachers, even in a good Catholic high school. Uh, he would take on some of the, the teachers. Uh, he graduated in 1952, Uh, And uh, he was drafted. He served two years in the military. There he faced, uh, um, when he served in the South, he was sent to to some of the southern states. And there he witnessed the segregation of African Americans. And sometimes when he would go out with some of the uh, African American buddies, uh, he experienced the fact that they would not serve his buddies. But he also uh, experienced direct racism uh on one of what he ha- when he finished uh, uh his uh, his uh, basic training at Fort Ord he then flew to Dallas to go on to, uh, to one of the southern states and they wouldn't serve him at the Dallas airport restaurant even though he was in his US military uniform and as he says in the story I wasn't in my Mexican uniform I was in an American uniform he said I looked like a general but he said that waitress still remembered the Alamo and so she wouldn't she wouldn't serve me <laughs> and so uh he witnessed racism, he came back after those two years, he uh, got married, had to have his families, two children, uh, Gilbert and, and James, and then he went back to school, L.A. City College, uh, and then uh, went on to uh, what was then L.A. State, which became the pr- predecessor of Cal State Los Angeles, but, and by then Sal was also working in the playgrounds. The public school playgrounds and he knew he liked to be around kids so he began to feel that he wanted to be a teacher and so after he his ba he then he went on to his teacher training at cal state la and he uh preparing to be a teacher and in one of those in one of his education classes uh again sal was a, a returning student he was a veteran and uh, he had uh, himself experienced discrimination. You know, growing up, there, were, there was segregation against Mexican-Americans, for example. Mexican-Americans and blacks could not attend certain public swimming pools. They could not attend certain public uh, uh, um, parks. And so he, he witnessed all that and, and so he knew about racism. And so he wasn't going to take anything from professors that suggested that somehow uh, uh, Chicanos had certain innate qualities that almost kind of uh, forecast that they would uh, not succeed. So in one of his classes, and and this is part of the story, and this is Sal's voice, he says, for example, uh, the classes I didn't particularly care for at Cal State LA were the education ones. And these I began to argue with some of my professors when they referred to Mexican-Americans in the schools, and I disagreed with them. They saw white middle-class students as the norm and minority students as deviants. I actually blew up once when one of my professors said in class that the depiction of Latinos uh, in, the, in the movie uh, West Side Story, which had just come out, in the movie West Side Story was accurate. That young Latinos, this professor believed, such as Puerto Ricans in the film, tended to be gang members, like it was almost biological that they would become bag members. So here, here in Sal's voice, he, he, he I don't know whether he got up or he raised his hand, whatever. But he says to the he said to the to the professor, he said, "Bullshit." <laughs> I challenged him right there in class with the, and with the other students stunned that anyone would say this in class, uh, much less take on the professor. "Bullshit," I repeated. First of all, West Side Story is the figment of the imagination of a white guy. Secondly, if there was a West Side Story and really dealt with Puerto Ricans, they wouldn't be dancing to that kind of music. <laughs> And you have to have seen the film, right? It's a uh, uh, Bernstein, you know. It's it's almost a uh, ballet type music, you know. And so he says. Uh, uh Uh, What you see, he says, is a myth. And of course, Puerto Ricans would be dancing the salsa, right, you know? They they wouldn't be dancing to that kind of Bernstein music. So he he challenged his professor, but that was his nature. His first uh, uh, teaching position uh, was actually at Washington Junior High in Pasadena, but that was only for a semester. Then he was was hired at Belmont here in downtown Los Angeles in the fall of 1963. And right there, he already began to organize students. Uh, One of the main problems that the students besides all of the ones that I've already referred to, okay, the tracking system, the, the low expectations by teacher, there's nothing worse when a teacher comes into a class and has low expectations. I mean, and the students pick up on that right away. In other words, the teacher is teaching to the lowest common denominator. And then the worst thing that happens is that the kids begin to also only aspire to the lowest common denominator for themselves. And so it's just tragic, and it continues even today, unfortunately. So Sal recognized those problems, and one of the problems that the students face at Belmont is that they had been almost prohibited from running for student council, so he began to organize them, and the students organized to run a slate for the, Next election in that fall, they referred the kids referred to them, and they came up with his own name. And this is pre-Chicano movement, ethnic consciousness. They called themselves the TMs, which stood for the Tortilla Movement. And so they ran. They got elected, but. uh, But Sal paid a price for it, I won't go all the details, it's all in there in the book, but uh, Sal then was, uh, the principal had him transferred. So they transferred him to Lincoln High School, not realizing that he would cause even more problems at Lincoln High School. So when he he starts in Lincoln at the beginning of 1964, for the next four years, Sal is in his classes, he's talking with students, he knows the the problems are clear there uh, in, in Lincoln High School. The students begin to recognize it, at the same time Sal is involved with what was called initially, the Mexican American Youth Leadership Conferences, which then later on becomes the Chicano Youth Le- Leadership Conference, which some of you know about. And there, uh, where uh, once a year, then later twice a year, Sal and other counselors began to meet with uh, Chicano uh, uh, high school students. And there, dialogues would begin to take place about the problems in the schools. And that led to a, a consciousness raising. So that, for example, some of the students who become involved in the 68 walkouts, some of the college students who then helped Sal in organizing those students, many of them had gone through those, those conferences, which were held in Malibu at Campus Kramer. So their consciousness had been raised. And what was important in, the, in, in, in that experience, as well as Sal and his classes, is that the kids began to realize that they were not the problem. They had been made to believe that they were the problem, why they weren't able to succeed in school, that their parents were the problem because their parents also held them back and did not value education, that their culture held them back because their culture was some kind of regressive uh, rural-based culture that, that was not fit for a more modern society. The kids began to realize, I'm not the problem. We're not the problem. It's the schools that are the problem. And that became a significant uh, change in their conscience. You have to first be aware of of what the problem is before you can actually attack it. And so this is what was happening in those four years. And so by into the 67, 68 school year, the, a lot of the students began to realize, inspired by Sal, that they had to take some kind of dramatic action. Some of them already had talked to teachers, to principals, some had already appealed to the school board, the board of education, and they paid absolutely no attention. And so they began to realize inspired by Sal that some dramatic action had to take place. What kind of dramatic action? Well, Sal said, well, maybe a strike. Maybe it has to be a student strike. And so they began to organize. One of the things that was impressive in, in, in doing this book was the level of organization. In the 1960s, in the 60s uh, protest movement and so forth, there was a lot of uh, attention paid to spontaneity. The sense that somehow, these kinds of protests were kind of they were spontaneous because if you talked about organization, then you were talking also about a certain level of hierarchy, leadership, and leaders meant hi- hierarchy and elitism and so forth. In the '60s, protest culture—no, we didn't. The sense that you didn't need that—that that people just spontaneously—but of course that was nonsense. All the '60s protests had leaders, had had a certain level of organization. The same thing with the walkouts. The students began to organize amongst themselves at each of the East L.A. schools. They began to have strike committees uh, to begin to plan. The college students that I mentioned that Sal begins to bring in from UCLA, from Cal State L.A., they, they were products of those schools. They knew what the problems were and they began to help Sal organize the students. And so there's a significant level of organization. And so it is really a social movement in that sense. It's an informal uh, type of uh, organization. And uh, so the students were, were, were ready. Sal's idea was that if there was going to be a student strike, it would happen later in the school year, maybe in May. What, a- what happened, however, is in the first week of March at Wilson High School, uh, the, the principal there decided to cancel a... Uh, a play that the students had been working on barefoot in the park because he didn't like some of the dialogue and so he canceled it at the last minute and the students reacted by walking out and then that build and then Several hundred students walked out at Wilson. By then, Sal knew the walkouts had begun. There was no going back now. The rest of the schools had to go. And so that first full week in March, the rest of the East LA schools went out on strike, went out and, and what became there for the blowouts or the walkouts of 1968. It's estimated that about 20,000, not just from the East LA, but from South Central, some of the black schools also went out because of their own grievances, but also in support of the Chicano students, and some of the students from West LA also walked out in support of the Chicano students. And so um, the kids came up with a list of demands, and so forth, and so on. They forced the school board to have a meeting the second week in March, and where the students said, "We will. We have a list of demands, but we'll only present them to you if you come to our community. We have to. You have to come to one of the East LA schools, and there we'll discuss the demands." And so the school board finally relented to that. And later in March. That meeting was held, and there, therefore, began a process of trying to bring about some of the reforms that the demands uh, called on. Uh, the, the parents and community people became involved in organizing what was called the Edu- Educational Issues Coordinating Committee, and they, therefore, then took up from where the students uh, had brought the, the issues because the students could not continue to well, he'd be on strike, they had to go back to school. They couldn't continue on a week-to-week basis to negotiate with the school board. So the, the EICC then took it up. And over a period of time, some of the reforms are, are made. Um, just to give you an idea, there were some, like 55 demands in general. Not that all the demands were, 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 were dealt with, but, but some of the demands that the students came up with inspired by Sal were things like compulsory bilingual and bicultural education in all East Los Angeles schools. Teachers and administrators to receive training in learning Spanish and Mexican cultural heritage. Because one of the things that Sal, one of his basic philosophies of education is that for a student to succeed, they must have a sense of personal Security, a sense of who they are. Otherwise, they will not uh, 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 succeed and ultimately they will drop out. And what was happening in these Mexican schools or later inner city schools. Uh, as this demand suggests, there was no attention being paid to the cultural and historical and ethnic background of the Chicano Mexican-American students. The kids were punished for speaking Spanish. There, there was no uh, way of somehow integrating their history, their culture, and so forth. In fact, it was looked down upon as if they had no history. They had no culture. What culture they had, as I mentioned, was a regressive culture. You had to get, a, get rid of it. and so. What Sal was already doing in his own classes, he was already bringing in Chicano studies even before there was Chicano studies. He was teaching already as much as he knew about Mexican history, about Chicano history. His philosophy is that kids have to feel good about themselves and that's basic psychology 101. In order to succeed, you can't feel bad about yourself. You have to feel somehow good about yourself. You have to be secure. So for him, the school environment has to represent, to borrow an, another term, has to represent a safe space. Has to represent a space where students feel comfortable. They have a, they have a sense that, the, that they're not strangers. They're not foreigners in the schools. These kids were coming into these East, LA, East LA schools, even though the whole area was Chicano, but they were made to feel strangers, like they weren't supposed to be there. and uh, they were interlopers. And so he said that this is, this is part of those changes that had to be made. The schools had to relate relate to who these kids were. It's, the teachers had to relate to them. And so that, that was one of his basic philosophies of education. You have to start there. The kids need to know who they are, where they're from, and some something about their history. Other demands were teachers and administrators who show any form of prejudice towards students, including failure to recognize cultural traditions, will be transferred. Textbooks and curriculum should be revised to show Mexican contributions to society, to show injustices they have suffered, and to concentrate on Mexican folklore. Class size must be reduced so teachers can devote more time to individual students. Counselor-student ratios must be reduced, and counselors must speak Spanish and have a knowledge of Mexican cultural heritage. Unfortunately, many of these demands are still relevant today. In Sal's time, counselors had to deal with several hundred students and, and most of those counselors, of course, did not, did not support, did not encourage the students to go on to college anyway. Uh, and unfortunately, these ratios still exist today. You know, how, how can a counselor, for example, even if they're well-meaning, counsel uh, 500 students that are, uh, that are you know, uh, that they have to deal with? That's impossible. Uh, uh, any teacher with a high percentage of dropouts from his or her classes will be identified to students in the community new, new teachers should be required to live in the community where they teach during their probationary period. So these were the demands. And over a period of time, some of the issues were addressed, but not all of the issues were addressed. Sal himself paid a price. Uh, within two months, Sal and 12 others were arrested. They became the East LA 13. They were arrested on conspiracy charges. Uh, Sal says that had, had he been convicted, he might have served something like 150 years in jail, and he would have been the Chicano Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, they, they've Finally got out on bail, but it took them two years to finally uh, to um, to take on the the, the charges. That it, that finally, an appeals court ruled that the, that they should not have been indicted and arrested because it was a violation of their civil rights. But all that they were doing in the walkouts was expressing their First Amendment. Uh, rights. Uh, Sal, however, uh, when school started again in the fall, was not allowed to teach at Lincoln High School because he was an indicted felony, he was told. And uh, then the community and students came back to his support. And later, at the end of September, early October, there was a one-week sit-in at the Board of Education, uh, which forced the school board to rescind its decision not to allow Sal Castro to teach at Lincoln High School. And so Sal was reinstated. But within a year, he's Transferred, uh, he's made to teach at several other schools until in 1973. He's back at Belmont, where he continues for the next uh, several decades until he um, he retires in 2003. And so um, the walkouts, uh, of course, was 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 uh, was very central to his. To this part of, uh, of his history. And it really began. The importance of the walkouts are not only in terms of challenging the whole educational system in Los Angeles, but in terms of the Chigana movement, which was developing already, led by Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the farmworker struggle. But the walkouts, only in Los Angeles, meant that they represented the beginnings of the urban Chicano movement. And so that's part of the importance of, of the walkouts. It begins to initiate, initiate many other urban struggles in places like Los Angeles, so that, for example, within two years, the largest demonstration against the Vietnam War by any minority group was here in Los Angeles. It was the Chicano anti-war movement. Uh, highlighted by the uh, moratorium against the war in Vietnam in East Los Angeles on August 29, 1970, and uh, estimated anywhere between 20 to 30,000, mostly Chicanos, protested against the war in Vietnam, and so the the walkouts in some ways helped to initiate these kinds of uh, other manifestations of the Chicano movement, and so. Uh, Sal went on to continue his uh, his role as a t- as teacher at Belmont in helping students, challenging many of the problems that still remain in the schools, and uh, and until uh, and, and being an inspiration to to his students. So, as I say, it's been a privilege to work on his story. It's a it's a wonderful story about a committed. I mean, Sal's important is obviously uh, certainly in. The case of the walkouts, but also what's important is his long history as a committed teacher, and that's, that's what's really important. So I, one of the last questions I asked him was, Sal, what do you want to remember in terms of your legacy? And he said, all I want on my gravestone is this, to have it re- read, Sal Castro, a teacher. So I give you Sal Castro, a teacher.
2: Thank you, Doctor. Your words are always inspiring. I always think you're talking about somebody else. I I don't want to mess up their books. It's a pleasure to be here in El Rancho Los Feliz de la Familia. Feliz. And I bet you not one Marshall High teacher has ever told the young people from Marshall High, which I could throw a football to Marshall, it's very close. And I bet you none of those bastards that Marshall teachers have ever told the young people about their American history. You know, we talk about, you know, when we talk about Spanish surname, it's not a foreign history, it's an American history. When these, when these folks came over um, f- from the, on the other side of the Mississippi, how we couldn't even go back. When these folks got off the Mayflower, we didn't ask them for their green card. When they headed uh, and crossed the Mississippi, we still didn't ask them for their green card. This country, we were already creating a country before there was a country of the United States, and it was here. In fact, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but you know, the real reason that you, uh, that you invited me because you wanted to see what a real movie star looks like, okay? (laughs) And, and you know, there, there's an accompanying movie, you know, the, the, you know, this thing is, is, is such a tremendous issue, not me, but, but the Chicano Civil Rights Movement is, is a tremendous issue that's been neglected and forgotten in American history, because when you hear the term, uh, uh, Chicano, or to you hear the term, uh, Civil Rights, right away, Malcolm X, which is fine, H. Uh, Rap Brown, which is fine. Dr. Martin Luther King, which is fine. But then, and Rosa Parks, which is also fine. But then there was a parallel movement. A parallel movement. Schools had already been desegregated by Mexican families by May 1946. Uh, one of the cases, uh, the the uh, Sylvia, uh, the uh, the Felicita Mendez case. In 1946, preceded Brown versus Board of Education. In fact, the uh, the lawyers that uh, that uh, that uh, took on the Supreme Court in the more famous Brown versus Board of Vacation, Topeka, Kansas, 1954. Those lawyers came over to visit the families in Westminster to see what the arguments were. So they used some of those arguments themselves later to win their case. One of those uh, lawyers, by the way, happened to be Thurgood Marshall. Now is that known? No. The teachers teach it. No. That's good old American history, folks. Anyway, you wanted to see uh, you you wanted to see what a movie star looked like, and supposedly that was me. Uh, they, uh, they, they, uh, the folks that put it together, Montesuma uh, Barza who had made uh, Selena before that, and and Edward was a very prominent actor. Famous dude, they asked me if I would help them with the project. Hollywood, that's Hollywood. This is a this is a Hollywood library. I mean, bookstore. So we we use Hollywood terms, all right? <laughs> the project. And so they asked me would I help them with a the project, and uh, this was gee, 1996, ten years before, because the movie came out in 2006. And I told, as I told the the gentleman who's a manager, you know, get some of the get some of the Lockout films because you can use that to parallel uh, to accompany the book. Anyway, they asked me to help, and I said on one condition that uh, my love interest has to be either Selma Hayek, uh, Eva Longoria, Eva Mendes, or J Lo. Si no, no hay nada, okay? <laughs> Now, the next problem they had on their hands is I was a handsome bastard when I was young. So then it's trying to figure out who's going to play me, okay? So then they, they first said uh, Benjamin Brad. I said, hey, good looking Peruvian kid. That's why I, we'll go with that. But he couldn't get out of a long term contract. So then they said, how about Mark Anthony? I said, no, La Friega. And I said, I said he's too skinny, man. And besides that, it's not, it's not going to be a musical. So then finally they settled on Mike Pena. Now, that was a lucky stroke because Mike, tremendous actor. I didn't know Mike. He's a Chicano kid from Chicago. Try to say that 10 times real fast. Chicano from Chicago, all right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, and uh, he had already been in Hollywood. He, I mean, he had already uh, done plays in New York, and, and the, the thing he did before the walkout was, uh, was a blockbuster crash. He was a locksmith in the movie, and he, he was holding a, a baby, and they were his baby, and uh, some, some fool was shooting at him. And after that, he did such a great job he got all kinds of awards and, and he came out in a two man movie with Nicolas Cage The Twin Towers and still after that The Shooter and then he did a, a couple of more blockbusters one with with the Merle Streep and Robert Redford I mean he's you know high, it's in the high rent district and I understand I just found out yesterday when Dr. Garcia and I were at another bookstore in Pasadena that he also is in the battle was it LA or something Los Angeles yeah he's in that one so hey he's, uh, he's in good shape so that's great the, the young woman that played the lead also was uh, was Alexa Vega who's a, a big time actress with, uh, with Disney and then she went back to New York and did some, some, uh, some musicals and now she's back again now she's back with a, with a young husband and I think she's gonna start a family but still continue to work, in, uh, to work with, uh, with Disney. Anyway the, the movie itself was, was inspired by the, the documentary a documentary that I'm happy to say, I'm happy to say, John, uh, John Ortiz, who I'm, who's uh, one of his admirers, uh, and I'll tell you a little while later why I want you to shake his hand, John Ortiz was one of the walkout leaders, in fact, I'll, I'll say it now, John, stand up, John, John was one of the walkout leaders from, from, uh, from Garfield High School, and I've always admired John because when 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 they asked him, when they asked him, well, "Who started? You know, who started this walkout?" He said we did. He said, well, who, who, wait a minute. You know, you got you let him know who started. No. We did." It reminded me of uh, I remind me of a of a of a Valentín de la Sierra, an old Mexican ballad during the Mexican Revolution. we just before they were going to shoot him, they asked him, "Well, who you know who, who got you? Who started this revolution?" He says, "I did." Now because he said it, then they them up and shot him. Now if he hadn't said he did it, they wouldn't have shot him. But John John said, hell yes, I'll take on, I'll take them on. Uh, we we started it. And and so then when I asked John originally about the, the word blowout, he said, high school students walking out in protest. That's what he told the board. <laughs> That's what a blowouts meant when he was up with the board of education there at uh, 415 North Grand. John now is a prominent uh, uh, educator in, in Montebello and he was telling me right now that <laughs> the same problems exist in Montebello. Hell, the same problems exist all over the all over the Southwest all over the United States because we got Mexicans all over we got no TV so we got Mexicans all over the country you know so back to the back to what inspired the, the movie what inspired the movie was the the documentary and as I said I'm happy to say it's out of litigation in fact my my good friend and little friend Moctezuma Sparza now owns the documentary so you'll be able to see it it's a it's a study of the uh, uh, and, and uh, of the uh, Chicano civil rights movement as I told you uh, it talks about Cesar Chavez and and the and the movement the the the, the movement representing the 14,000 farm workers in California it talks about the uh, Corky Gonzalez in in Colorado and his attempts to organize La Raza Unida in Texas, Reyes Tijerina in in Mexico, and this guy with the with a big nose is supposed to be me, okay? So of course, there's a part three called "Taking Back to Schools." And Susan Racho who was there last night, a, a, a very prominent producer with ABC. In fact, ABC used to have their studios just just behind me; they moved, but. Um, she produced the part three, which is taking back the schools, which was the part that uh, that uh, that uh, the the movie was by, loosely based on and so you know one of the things about the movie, Dr. Garcia said twenty thousand you know when, when they did the research on the movie they they figured that almost forty double forty thousand kids walked out because it wasn 't only l a it was it was the county of Los Angeles too that was walking out Norwalk, uh, el monte. Uh, Guarte, Downey. I mean, they were all over, as far, even as far north as, as Oxnard did the walking out. And white kids were walking out in support of the kids in East L.A. So it was a huge, in fact, it was so big that the, that the media uh, was, was told by school authorities, suppress the story, because we don't want this going across the country. So in reality, the story was, was uh, suppressed in part. You didn't hear about it. It only was through word of mouth. That had moved east because after the kids walked out in Los Angeles, there were walkouts in there were walkouts in Texas, Colorado, Nuevo Mexico. Hell, by December, I was I was speaking in Chicago. They had had a walkout at the, at the uh, Restaurante Mazatlan. By the way, that's where my 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 family, my father's family, was from. Anyway. Uh, so this, this then inspired the movie and I got a chance and opportunity because of it because I guess President Clinton saw it in 1996 and said that dude's got a long nose like me. You invite him to the White House. So here I go. East LA kid. Uh, invited to the White House. Hey don't steal nothing but you know you're, you're there. So uh, President, uh, President uh, uh, Clinton big. Calote, big dude, he could have been a tight end for the University of Arkansas, he walks in with a big smile on his face in the blue room, I mean, I didn't see Monica Lewinsky anywhere but he had a big smile on his face, and so, so I, I told him, you know, I told him my president, and it wasn't, I didn't say Mr. President like everybody else, no, I said my president, I thought, I, was, I guess I thought I was Emiliano Zapata in the revolution of when he was talking to Francisco Madero, uh, and so I said, you know, we have the dubious distinction of leading the nation in high school dropouts college dropouts and teen pregnancies and I, and in spite of the fact that by the year 2010, we're going to be the largest minority in the United States. Well, we beat that. We became that in 206. As I told you before, we got no TVs. So we are the, the largest minority in the United States. And they're going to have to start listening. Well, President Clinton was willing to listen way, listen, way back in 96. Because what he did is he turned to, to Henry Cisnetos, who was the Secretary of, of uh, Urban uh, – uh, what the hell? I don't remember. It's a long term. Uh, housing and Urban. Development exactly thank you uh, uh, and he said he told him something when I, when I told him uh, about the, the the crisis we were in, and what I asked Cinciros later, and it was that he wanted to have a White House conference on the problems of the the, the Mexican American the Latinos in the United States and so and he, specifically the Mexican Latinos. Okay, I, I want to emphasize that because we get lumped together with other min, with other Latinos or Spanish surnames, and we we have unique problems in the Southwest. We are the largest minority of Latinos. See, there are Latinos all over. There are Latinos, the Florida Latinos in in uh, in that area, and then also in New York, and then we have the Pu- Puerto Ricano Latinos in the in the Eastern Seaboard, and and not that they're not. Puerto Ricanos here in Los Angeles or Cubanos, but the huge populations of, of that particular minority were most, was more, mostly in the East. Then we have Central Americans that have come, the recent arrivals that have come. That's still another problem. But the problem of the Mexican American is unique because they've been here. They were here. Do you know, do you know one thing? And sometimes some my, my my white friends or my Anglo-American friends, when you say, as I said before, Mexican history, why? Why? Didn't we, we're in the United States. Well, you damn right we're in the United States. Don't you know that there is no American military cemetery, let me repeat, that there is no American military cemetery and throughout the world, and they've got them in China, they've got them in Singapore, they've got them in Philippines, that there's not Mexican boys buried there, including the Revolutionary War. Folks, how does that grab you? Mexicans were fighting in the Revolutionary War of 1778, 76, 77, 78, 70. What? You got damn rights. You see, 9,000 Mexican troops were sent up here. To help Washington, they were led by a former professor, University of Mexico, Bernardo Galvez. They should name streets after the dude. Now, in, interesting enough, in New Orleans, if you say Galvez, they know. They know Galvez. So that that's him, Bernardo Galvez, the general that led 9,000 Mexican troops to help Washington and blockade the southern ports with 44 ships blockading the ports of Natchez, Biloxi, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans so the British couldn't invade from the south. Gave, uh, uh, gave uh, Washington time to, re- to re- reload up in, in uh, Valley Forge. Also, there was more Mexican money, and by the way, it was called New Spain, but it was sure as hell Mexico. Uh, uh, th- 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 there was more Mexican money supporting the American Revolution than there was French money. Why nobody talks about that? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. The racism. Huh? How's that? Huh? porque estamos bien cafecitos, I guess. But it's true. You know something else? The missions that, of course, were already established, the missions passed the hat and came up with 12,000 dollars to support the American Revolution to support Washington. There's a little hamlet, there was a little hamlet of Tucson that in Arizona that was founded by, the Mex- by Mexicans that raised $14,000. I, I, I sent a note to, to uh, Governor Brewer, you know, <laughs> and told her, hey man, you're throwing, you're throwing out the wrong people because, you know, who's to tell? You know, after the war, after, the, after the, the war against Mexico, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo guaranteed all Mexicans, you know, the, the right of language and citizenship forevermore. And they could practice their culture, language, and traditions again in perpetuity. Now, who's to say, because many of them went back. Many didn't stay. It's just the same like the Tories. When the American Revolution was over, many of the of the, of the colonists went back to England, the Tor, so-called Tories. They didn't stay. So a lot of the Mexicans that were here and had already been granted U.S. citizenship, went back to Mexico. Now who's to say that the folks that are coming up recently aren't relatives of those folks? Now what do we do then? You see, we're lousy historians, I guess, in Arizona. I guess more across the whole damn United States. Damn, no, it's my country. You know, we always talk about our adopted Hell no, I was born here. This is my country. This is our country. In fact, when I, uh, and to prove it, uh, I guess we don't have to continue to prove it, but go, go, to, go to Washington, D.C., as I did when I went to visit President Clinton. Look at the Vietnam Wall, 30-some-odd percent of the names in the Vietnam wall are Spanish surnames and most of them are Mexican kids. 50,000, 55,000. I I, I spotted three of my kids from, three of my students on the wall. Plus one more that that, uh, I recently discovered was also on the wall. Do you know that during World War II, and we always talk about the Great War, the Great War was World War II. Do you know that uh, Five million, four, to four and a half to five million young men fought in World War II, Americans. And do you know that 800,000 were Mexican-Americans fighting in World War II? That many. And we were a small percentage of the population. But poor people fight the wars. And I tell you, a good percentage never came back. I can attest to that as a little kid in East L.A. I used to walk around and if you had a, a relative in the military, you put, you put a star, a gold star, a little flag, red, white and blue flag with a, with a blue star, meaning that somebody in your family, one person in your family was in the military, one boy, mostly boys, very few young women then in World War II, uh, fighting in, in the war. And But if you had two stars, they meant two, three, four, five, in fact the, 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 the Familia, the Familia Sara Castro in Texas, six. I was at six. I guess I had to make a special flag for her. Fortunately, most of them came back out of the six. But uh, compared to that, if you had a young person in the military, but he had gotten killed, he had a gold star in the middle not a blue star and you know as a little kid I still remember I saw as many gold stars in East L.A. as I saw blue. I didn't know the significance as a little kid I, I, I learned that later but man have we paid our dues in this here country. We are Americans red white and blue because it is this is our country and I'll be goddamn if, if, if people start talking about you can't teach you know this is this is America. you goddamn rights right this is America and we've all contributed to the development. To its hopefully greatness down the road. It's not there yet. It's not. It's not Ronald Reagan's uh, city, Golden City on the Hill. Not yet. You know, the vato was 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 nearsighted. It ain't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> Even George Bush Sr., the same thing. You know, that, gold, that golden city on the hill. No, todavía no. The playing field is not there, as John Ortiz was telling me. You know, the same problems in education exist. Yes, as Dr. Garcia was saying, yeah, we had an education, but an inferior education. An education that, that these guys weren't thinking. When Horace Mann talked about public education, he was, he, uh, back, he was talking about the white Anglo-Saxon child he wasn't thinking about the black child, the Asian child, the Mexican child or, and other Latino children. He was thinking and also uh, also uh, Middle Eastern children today. He was just thinking about the Anglo-Saxon white kid. Uh, so But there's, there's, there's more to it than that. You know, let, let, me, let me tell you, let me, let, me, let me read to you when some heavy thinkers in the United States think about this or have thought about this in the past about children in schools and whether they get their American history told to them American history with Spanish surnames or American heroes with Spanish surnames. Edward R. Murrow who was a, a giant in the media he was one of the first uh, foreign correspondents uh, and he was in England uh, during, the, during the Blitz uh, when the Germans were bombing uh, London. He was on a roof looking and, and, and describing everything on the radio. Uh, he worked for CBS. Later he came when television came into being and then he became even more prominent and still later he worked for President Kennedy as his, his information, information's uh, uh, director. He said, you can deny a people's heritage But you cannot deny the responsibility of the results. Let me repeat it. You can deny a people's heritage, but you cannot deny the responsibility of the results. That's why we continue to lead the nation in high school dropouts. You see? And, 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 and I'll, I'll do another one before I get into my analysis of this. Here's another one in mind. This shocked me. This vato is to the right of Adel the Hun. He is on the, on the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, Antonin Scalia. I mean, this guy squeaks. He's so, he's so reactionary. But he said, if you lose your heritage, you lose part of yourself. That's Scalia. I mean, he said it too. I hope, we have a, I hope we have a case uh, when we sue the school district. The United States, by the way, you might want <laughs> to know this. There's a crazy professor at the Cal State Long Beach by the name of Armando Vasquez who yesterday handed the book to Arne Duncan, <laughs> Secretary of Education. So hopefully the dude will read it. Maybe on his way back to Washington, he'll read the damn book and maybe he start figuring out, hey, we got problems in River City. So anyway, this was Scalia. And did, 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 you, did, you, did you get the, the email? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is news you. <laughs> he's going to even send you a photo of it being done. <laughs> I told you he's crazy. <laughs> Armando. Uh, no man, here's another one. And this is, this is really, this, this, this to me is, hits, hits it. No man can find a true expression for living who is ashamed of himself or his people. Romain Salazar a tremendous, tremendous man I, 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 he, he was a friend of mine I'm, I'm honored to say he was a friend of mine and I guess we were drinking buddies but, but anyway he, you know, a, a thinker and it's so critical that everybody all human beings be comfortable in who they are whether they're Asian, or black, or white, or pink, and Martians, whatever. I guess, you know, sometimes folks think we're, we're, we're from outer space. You know, illegal aliens, we came on a satellite, orally, And to prove it, we came in a round tortilla, Vamos, you know. <laughs> That's what George Lopez should be making fun of, not the nasty stuff he does. I don't like George Lopez, and I say it right now, sue me George, are you here? No. <laughs> but, you know. This then uh, is, is it was and were my concerns, and and this was going on. This was happening in in, in 1968. Prior to 1968, uh, we were even we were even getting putting our heads together to to try and change this way back in 1963. So we created the Mexican American Youth Leadership Conference that exists even today by miracle by miracles. And it's what we're we're gonna we gotta cut it, vamonos. And uh, so by miracle of miracles, it still exists today. So no the book itself is is of an East LA kid born in East LA and and all of a sudden got to go to the White House and meet meet the, the president. I even met Jack Kennedy, his name was Jack Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, I met him, I got to shake his hand. You know, I didn't get to meet Bobby Kennedy when John leaves, shake his hand, because he got to meet uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, by, he, he got to, they, they had an audience, and the kids that walked out had an audience with Robert Kennedy, because he supported the walkouts. And that was suppressed. The press never, the, 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 lead, the media never picked that story up. It was in the underground newspapers that you saw the photo. But it is in, the, what page is it on in the book, Doctor? There's a photo of that, exactly. The Kennedy family didn't know that this this had happened. I've still got to send we, uh, uh, Araceli, Araceli Lopez is, is my right arm when it comes to the Chicano Youth Leadership Conference. 181, exactly. We've got to send the photo to the Kennedy family. Um,
0: young student with.: glass
2: of Yeah John Ortiz is there, prominent right there. That's this big John. and so, so he, you know, you can shake his hand because he got to meet Bobby. I didn't. I got to meet Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I got to meet Bing Crosby, I even got to meet Goldie Hahn. I even watched them when they painted her when she was on laughing because they farmed me out to KNBC. That's another story. It's in there. They farmed me out to KNBC. They didn't know what to do with me because I was in limbo. They, I, was, I, was, I was not allowed to be in, the t- in school because I was an indicted felon because those sons of bitches not only threw me in jail, but they went after my credential. That was another one that's in the book. I mean, that's, I mean my livelihood as a teacher, you know, they had taken it away. Orale, pues, I would have been, you know, dancing get. I, I would have gone back and played my bongos. My I was good playing the bongo. <laughs> anyway, but no, I mean, it took the Duchesne Fund, the NEA's uh, uh, legal, legal arm to, to come in with six, a ba- battery of six lawyers to, de- to, to defend my, my credential. Because, see, I was an indicted felon now. But it had, didn't have to do. Well, why was I an independent felon? I was trying to make education better. And the ambassadors wanted to take my teaching credential away. Doesn't make sense. So, no, they, they laughed about it and threw the case out. So, anyway, that's the book on, on, on that in my life story. Uh, my Some Humble Beginnings in East L.A. My, my dad, my mom, uh, my, my brother, and my family. Uh, in fact, you know, this, this is home week because I'm from this area the second part of my life. In fact, my son Jimmy and Gilbert both went to uh, Marshall High School. And today, I am, I am a member of the, uh, today I'm, in a, I'm a member of uh, three of the parents' organizations there. I'm the president of the, of the Title I. In fact, they're sending me, I'm getting paid to go to, <laughs> to, go to the CABE conference, the, the California Association of Bilingual Education at Long Beach, the three days. So I'll be out there, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll be out there uh, 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 incognito, nobody's going to know what, what the hell's going on. So uh, that I'm there, and which is fine, fine with me. And so anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. And I know we have to, well, we're going to have to cut it. Uh, how much have we got? Do we have time for questions? Yeah,
1: yeah I, I wanted to make sure we had so
2: we'll Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why I want to stop right now. So thank you for coming. I know it's a tough night, and I really appreciate it. I want to, I want you, I want to clap for you because you came. Thank you very much. And. But I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm hurt at the, at the proprietors here. They don't have C-SPAN here. You know what the hell? Come on. You know, I've, I, I've seen C-SPAN do, 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 do a book signings where about three people there. You know, they, they never show. They never show to, up till the very end. You know, they come down and three people standing. That's why. But there's many more than that here. But thank you again. I should say we're going to be at the
0: uh, LA Book Festival at the end of April, and hopefully c will be there. But also, the quick announcement, uh, Sal will be this Monday at Occidental College. You've some friends in that area. Speaking at what time do you know yeah. about
2: six starting at six starting at six and uh, so yeah, and then we'll be up. Uh, no, we're, we're yeah, we got a yeah, hell of a tour UCLA
0: later yeah. in May,
2: yes, and then down at the uh, UCS uh, UC, uh, San Diego, Cal will be up at, at Cal, yeah. Cal we'll be up at Cal. Yeah. and uh, I'm gonna ask you to actually uh, stand by the mic and sure. the
1: questions oh. it's actually sure.
2: casted and oh, recorded. You are. Oh, you want? okay, okay. So okay. That's okay. well, that's, that's good. good. We're, 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 we're there. we you got to have to have the thing solved, huh? Okay,
0: but I want to ask John, do you want to make a comment or anything? About since we've mentioned, I stumbled
3: on something
0: that I was writing
3: at the time, and unfortunately, I didn't have enough. I didn't present what I had written. There were people asking, Why are you doing this? I think the teachers' conference said, We ask for dance, and you give us the hokey (laughs) pokey. We ask for theology, and you give us snake oil. We ask for civilization, and you give us your hokey sensibility. We ask for economics, and you give us your Yankee nightmare you referred to as, as the American dream. But we will give you speech, and we will give you drama, and we will give you politics strong enough to have your children change their names. Yes.
0: Very nice, John. Very good man. <laughs> yeah. That gentleman right next to you, I had
1: a question. Uh, uh, you know, this is a, uh, South history is well-known. And, you know, and, and I'm glad these things have been excavated. Um, uh, but
0: having known that, what surprised you the most in writing the book that you didn't know? Uh, the question is, uh, what surprised me the most in uh, in doing the book? Well, a lot of things. I mean, I didn't know everything about his story and so forth. But one of the things that uh, that impressed me was that as 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 Sal began to talk with the students about taking a dramatic action. What he was really thinking, unbeknownst to the students, was that he hoped that they wouldn't actually take that action. He hoped that just the threat, the bluff, as he calls it, would be enough to force the school system, the school board, and so forth, to begin to deal with the issues that were being put forth by the students themselves. One of the reasons he he hoped that it wouldn't come to an actual student strike, as he often says on other occasions, what had happened in Los Angeles three years before we had the Watts riot. 36 people were killed, not only uh, by the police, but the US Army that came in with tanks and so forth. These were dangerous times in the 1960s. He feared that something similar to that would happen to his kids, to his students in East LA. And so he hoped that it wouldn't come to that, then maybe just the bluff would be enough. But as I mentioned to you, when that incident happened with the, at Wilson High School, then you couldn't the, the genie was out and then you could not have a bluff anymore it had to be the whole all of the schools had to go out and that's all uh, that's what impressed me that, that that he had that sense that 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 he hoped that it, the bluff would be enough because he didn't want the something happening to 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 the students and of course and john can talk about it uh the police did come in garfield high at uh roosevelt uh, garfield tells me i mean uh, at all of them, but, uh, but especially in, in those schools. And you were telling me in our interview, I mean, you had snipers, you had police snipers up on the top of the buildings of the school.
3: I'm not it, What the school did, they knew we were going to do it, and they switched the principals. The principal we were given was, was a colonel in the Air Force. <laughs> and he had used Garfield as a base of recruitment. And he once told me, we're talking about he said, well, you'll stick to your guns. He said, I'll stick to my guns. I said, well, you stick to your guns, I'll stick to to my bombs. What do you mean by that? You'll find out. But well, when you did, they had prepped us for a riot. They put snipers on top of the building with, with shotguns. And there were 40 units of police behind it. They, they were, It was, we were being set up. And I told the kids, be wise because the recruiting to fight Vietnam telling you that it's your freedom. Look at the freedom you've got right here right now. Look at that. And when we walked out, half the school walked out with us. And students so so
0: And so students so were so beaten, so students so were so arrested and so, so forth and so back on. Back yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. if you see the movie, if you see the movie walk out. Even the producers, the HBO producers, didn't want didn't to show that, but I said, that didn't really happen. And, and so they had to argue with the HBO folks. And finally, uh, Susan, uh, not Susan, but uh, Moctezuma and it and almost dug and dug and dug, and they finally found footage uh, uh, that showed some of the beatings. Now most of the beatings did, you know, were ha- that did happen and were filmed, they disappeared. Because the police were allowed to go into the, to, to the different uh, um, stations. Uh, the news, news, uh, sections of the station and expunge uh, expunge film. I saw that firsthand when I was at KNBC because I was doing a documentary and I saw these guys in suits in there and uh, the lady was there. Oh yes, come on in, gentlemen. And then they were going through the files. I didn't know who the hell they were. I found out later these guys were cops and that was common practice. So much of that with footage was was not there. There's a line in the movie that Mike Pena uses that you know it didn't happen if it's not in film on film. It didn't happen well something else that that I just uh, remembered and it's I, I think it's I don't think it's in the book even after the first walkout I wanted to get together with Jack Crowther the superintendent I knew that Tavato liked to bend the elbow a little bit I even knew where he, where he used to go because it's not very far from the board a place called Nicolas on sunset and and I and I literally went down there I found out when he was down there it was between between the morning meetings of the board and the afternoon meetings I think he I think he drank his lunch but anyway he was there and, and I was there at the bar and I said uh, Mr. Crowther I'm Sal Castro and it was like I wasn't there and it was more more than once that I tried it be- so we wouldn't have to go out again you know to try all kinds of things so the kids would not be in because another thing that was danger and it was the the gang idea you know there were there were different barrios and you would be crossing gang territories but you know this is something very interesting and it hasn't been done yet but during that period of the walkouts gang activities literally stopped there was no gang activity of any kind in los angeles city and county during that period of time there was like a moratorium on gangs there was a, there was a self-imposed you know uh, a moratorium which is a yeah, beautiful it was thing in the sea
3: the word of the street was between the guys this is
2: Give
0: it yeah, the the yeah. Give it the
2: exactly it not a solution but it was a step in the right direction
0: some other questions or comments uh, from the audience?
2: Got everything solved.
1: Well, do you, do you, see you see the fruits of your labor today? Do,
0: you see, yeah. do we <laughs> see the fruits of our labor? Well, sell?
2: <laughs> yeah. Listen. Yeah, that's true. Yes, yes, and no. Uh, I just lo- I just look because we're going to send out we're going to send out solicitations of, of of getting money to continue our Chicano Youth Leadership Conference because right now one of the first programs L.A. City School cut was the, the Chicano Youth Leadership Conference, a three-day concert. It's expensive because it's three days, three days at Hes- Kemp Heskramer in Malibu. But it's a beautiful thing to the point that, so effective that from 84 to 87% of the kids that go, there, the 11th graders, and stay the three days, not only do they go to college, because that's our emphasis, but they graduate from college. Just a young lady a little while ago here, had been a cylc here and I signed her book, and I said, where are you going to school? Georgetown. Georgetown University one of our one of our kids you met her and I told her make sure you tell them they're not the Hoyas, they're the Oyas, all right? Because you know in Spanish, it means pots. Hoyas means pots. and they say the Hoyas when they're playing basketball. Because they, they have lousy football teams, but basketball they're good in. But I say, you're not the Hoyas, dude, you're the Oyas. So <laughs> No, I think the I mean I
0: think the schools as a result of the walkouts had to address some of the issues. Uh, Sal mentions, for example, some of the colleges and universities weren't even were, were, s- were struck by what was happening. And for example, UCLA uh, didn't have many Chicano students, but within a year, Sal says there were well over a 1,000, almost 2,000 students who were being recruited, and was happening in the other colleges. But within the high schools themselves, they became a little bit more aware, more sensitive. And over a, a period of years, you find more Mexican-American teachers, you have Mexican-American principals. Does that mean that they change all the systems? Some yes, some not, because some of them become, you know, part of the system. Uh, but. Uh, more importantly, what the walkouts showed, and uh, which are part of the Chicano movement, it was part of empowering the Chicano-Latino community. The Chicano movement, among other things, but certainly very centrally, made Chicanos and by extension Latinos into major national political actors. Look at what is happening in every single presidential election today, millions upon millions of money spent on getting the so-called Latino vote. That comes out of the movement to make Chicanos, that made Chicanos, uh, other people aware that there were Chicanos here, that they had concerns, they had grievances. But more importantly, the walkouts, the movement as a whole made empowered Chicanos, at least that generation of Chicanos, that they could bring about change. They didn't have to wait for someone else to make change, they had to bring about change themselves and empowered the communities. And they were inspired, of course, by the Walkouts, by Cesar Chavez, by many other uh, movements of the Chicano movement. There's a wonderful line in the Montezuma Sparza film a walkout, where at the end of the film, the character of Paula Chrysostomo, one of the student leaders at Lincoln High School, is asked, well, you guys walked out, blah, 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 and doesn't appear that much has changed. And Paula looks right at the camera, and she says, that may be true, But I've changed, or we've changed, we've changed. They've become empowered, and there was no going back. They knew that they could change the system. They knew, as I said earlier, that they were not the problem. The schools were the problem, the system was the problem. What system? The American capitalist system. They may may not have thought in those complete terms, but they knew there were some things wrong in American society, and now they were going out and change the world. Now, did they change the world? Yes, some things, but not everything. That's why there's still many problems. But I'm impressed by how so many people, and John Ortiz is a good example, how many of that, what I would call the blowout generation, have remained true have remained true to their principles of why they walked out, and they're still in the community trying to bring about change and so forth and so on. That's very impressive.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and exactly, and, and I started to say, and, and didn't finish, I looked at the 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 list of principals are going to send solicitations more than half of your principals in secondary schools are Spanish-earning or about half that's tremendous because when the kids walked out there was only one principal in a high school. His name was Sueta and he was way way the hell out in Birmingham. And there were only there were only three or four in the junior high, and there were about seven or eight in the elementary school. So now we have a lot more. And all you have to do at the changes, go to the city council. Look at all those brown faces in the city council. It reminds me of the first city council, okay? <laughs> 1850. All right. Julian Chavez, Manuel Requeña. To get into history, we don't have time. But 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 the other part, the the, the folks that really were, were shortchanged in the Movie. The college kids, as Dr. Garcia was talking about, where the where the where the college leadership, my my kitchen cabinet. Young men, young, for instance, one young man, Juan Gomez, Juan Gomez, Juan Gomez Quiñones. Now, uh, Dr. Juan Gomez Quiñones, UCLA history professor. Uh, Hank Lopez, Dr. Hank Lopez, uh, Cal State Northridge, history department. Uh, Dr. Carlos, oh, Carlos Muñoz, Dr. Carlos Muñoz, professor of history at Maritas at the University of California. Uh, Monte Perez, Monte Perez, Garfield, uh, Cal State, LA today is the president of the, uh, of the uh, Moreno Valley Community College. Uh, Susan Racho, who is, as I said, a very prominent producer for ABC. Uh, who, am I, who am I forgetting? Well, no, I wasn't in
0: the walkouts. <laughs> but Vicky Castro, who was one of the yeah, college Vic, students, Vicky who, Cass, was, yeah. a, who uh, was one of the organizers well, along with Sal, and then, lo and behold, in the 80s, she is elected to the L.A. school board, exactly, the very board that these kids and Vicky were protesting against. So now they're, yeah. they're,
2: they're, they're, yeah, and, that they're, and Tony, the, your your mayor, your mayor, your mayor went through it. Your mayor, the you know Tony, Tony Villar, okay, he went through it, and he, he was one of the WACA guys. I don't know how he did it though, because he said in, in 1970, you know, he was too young, too young for Tava Chavalon. Let, let me but
3: her name out, two of the, last the first Chicano to graduate from Brandeis from
2: yeah exactly exactly one of the one of the walkout kids Casey went to yeah yeah it's uh, so no that, that generation really really moved <laughs> <laughs> that generation really moved well the walkouts oh. the movement uh, I mean one of the
0: things that it did is to pressure the system to open up now the system also uh, repressed, attempted to repress the movement. What happened at the walkouts? You know, demonstration was broken up. Three people killed, including the journalist Ruben Salazar. So the system reacted in two ways to the, as it usually does. It, it represses some, but in, in order to release the steam, it opens up and allows some into, you know, to advance. <coughs> yes, you had a question.
1: I want to add one interesting side note. Um, after the chaos. L.A. School Board went to the state legislature to have, if the school district wanted to, a voluntary bilingual bicultural education program, a treaty against the beginning of structural bilingualism. In other words, school districts can opt involuntarily to start to operate as a response to what was going on. Yep. Uh, I just want to say our generation actually went, when uh, was the first big year of EOP, the civil rights movement yeah. finally geared up and we got three months to go to school. Yeah. That's
0: mm-hmm. why Yeah, up, like about exactly. 2000. Yeah. And again, what the walkouts, what the movement showed uh, is something that we always have to remember is that all major social changes and reforms have always come not from the top, not the trickle-down, but from the bottom. People organizing, whether they're abolitionist or feminist, to get the vote and so forth, civil rights, the Chicano movement, the farm workers, all major um, changes in this country have come from the bottom up. What does that tell us? that those same efforts still have to, to occur today because there's still a lot of struggles, not only for educational justice, but for social justice in general in this country. There's too many people being left out, tremendous disparities in wealth, uh, people who are suffering, who are still poor. Look at the immigrants and how you know Arizona and so forth, and how people are blaming them for the recession and for other kinds mm-hmm. of social ills. But the only way these things are gonna change is what these students begin to realize. We, we have to do it. No one is gonna do it for us. John and others are testimony They, they had to come together through organization, organizing. By,
2: by the, by the way, in Wisconsin, and by the. Comical thing your point, you know,
1: because today we got internet, Twitter, Facebook, social media.
2: We had one telephone, one line. <laughs> yeah, we sure.
1: Five to twelve people in the whole house, so we have one telephone.
2: Oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. exactly. Well, it you know, it got it got done. But uh, here's uh, talking about about levity. Uh as you know in Wisconsin all hell has broken loose and and now uh, they're now they're trying to get rid of the eight cabrones republicans. And so there's a there's a there's a right in uh campaign to get rid of the, the the eight Republican uh senators, senators uh and so they've gone around some of the some of our lefty friends have gone around to the different houses har- uh, you know harassing the fa- harassing where they live and also taking signatures to recall them so they went to one one of the senator's homes and the wife came out and said he doesn't live here anymore he's living with his girlfriend Where do I sign <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay I think with that I think <laughs> <laughs>